0: You are listening to the Coming Up for Air podcast hosted by Air Moms, Lori McDougall and Annie Highwater. This podcast is sponsored by alliesinrecovery.net. Coming Up for Air brings together two wonderful people, both of whose adult sons are in recovery from opiate addiction. Annie Highwater and Lori McDougal have been through years of their loved one's active addiction. They have come to understand the direct link between taking care of yourself and being able to help your loved one. During these conversations, Lori and Annie address the questions and concerns brought up by allies and recovery members. And now, coming up for air with Lori McDougal and Annie Highwater.
1: everyone, And welcome back to this week's episode of Coming Up for Air. I am your host, Annie Highwater, author of the book Unhooked, and I am speaking today with my co host, Lori McDougall. Hello, Lori, how are you? Good. How are you doing, Annie? Good. Um, I have an interesting topic that I wanted to bring up that spawned from a relationship with, or not a, a conversation with, one of my best friends since I was nine. So it's something I kind of want to run with, if you don't mind. This is uh, something you and I have talked about quite a bit. It's called, uh, I've called it, Who is My Enemy?, Good question. (laughs) (laughs) Right, because sometimes you don't know or sometimes you think it's everyone. So I really wanted to kind of get into this and get into scientific, psychological dynamics of it. So we always want to present not as a victim, but as a victor who is triumphant over painful things. And I don't want to go too into detail in situations because you just need enough dynamics that it's... I, I try to make it enough about me that others can make it about them because these are all part of the human experiences. We all have hurt feelings or weaknesses or, you know, things that happen, and being as real as possible about it so that others can relate and grow and be empowered or inspired is really just kind of what we're trying to do here at Coming Up for Air. Right. So when it comes to, just because this podcast is so related to the fact that we've both got sons in recovery who experienced the nightmare of addiction, substance use disorder, um, all that falls under that umbrella, and both are doing well now, but you, you know, we're eyes open that it could happen again. One thing that I have noticed when it comes to who is my enemy when I'm dealing with being in the midst of the fears and concerns of having an addicted loved one, particularly a child. One thing that I have noticed is if it feels like no one understands you, no one can understand what you're going through and they just can't seem to get it. It's because they can't. Right. Unless they have been through it. Or been trained and sometimes not even then unless someone has been through it with a child with a loved one specifically with a son or daughter I think that's a little bit different level than a husband or wife as much as that's terrible and grievous and fearful when it's your child unless you have been through that with your child that you just can't get it you just can't get what it's like to go through and why people respond like they do when they're in the midst of that why someone is sensitive and and why they're acting like they are they can't seem to focus you can't understand any of the dynamic someone's going through unless you have been through it too you just can't
2: right and and i think i i hear this in meetings and in working with other people i hear this all the time yeah i hear um, some people talk about you know some people have dealt with a loved one like a spouse a boyfriend a girlfriend a mother or a father and i have heard those same people say it's different when you're talking about my child yeah. and i think i think it's because you have the ability when you when you're talking about a loved one like a, a spouse or a boyfriend or a girlfriend you can say you can detach you can say you're gone you're out of my life But when it comes to having a child, one, you really, it's so much harder to separate from that.
1: Well, I can tell you from experience. You just can't, yeah. I have an addicted mother who I deal with in sections. I know sometimes it's a no access boundary, sometimes I can take it in doses. And when I go into no access and we have no communication, I'm not in a grievous state and I'm not in the fear and worry about her use. Like when my son got injured and became dependent on painkillers, his problem changed the game for me. Absolutely right. changed the game. It's a game changer. Right. And, and it's I, almost, I hear
2: this all the time.
1: It's, yeah, right. And it's not just that it's different between the relationship you're in, whether it's a relative or a child. When you're talking to someone who hasn't been through it with a child, you're, right. it's like you're speaking two different languages. You're speaking English, they're speaking Russian or vice versa they just can't get it. That's why support groups are so important and making your world small is important because you're going to get wounded in battle. You're going to get your feelings hurt. Some people say shaming things intentionally. Some people are just casual with advice. Some people just can't get it. They just can't get it. I got a lot of painful situations with a friend of mine who had a three-year-old at the time that my son was in and out of our home. And she would give me advice constantly or be very abrupt with me when I would be in a weakened condition or vulnerable or upset. Or in fear, and I would call her because she's who I normally called, and she would, you know, kind of snap at me or rush me off the phone or say, Well, why don't you just do this or that? Well, your child is upstairs in bed, tucked in at night. I'm fearing for my child's life. And one thing I have to say that people can't get is that it's almost like your kid's been kidnapped, and you play out every terrible scenario that might be happening to them. And I always tell people, it was no different for me than if my son had been laying in bed dying of leukemia. The situation was different, but not to my heart. It's right. that way for your heart. Your heart right. feels no different about it. Right. It's it's funny you say that because I I was just gonna say that
2: people are more sympathetic to other diseases. There's so much more sympathetic and i think personally i think that it may be because it's so much easier one people people accept other diseases as diseases so they're able to be empathetic and then two people understand that they don't understand what it's like like so what i mean by that is if i have a child with cancer you'll hear people say to Say, oh, I, you know, I feel so bad that their child has cancer. I'm going to bring a casserole dish yeah. over. I'll never understand what they're going through. With us, when it comes to substance use disorder, it's it's not one. It's not looked at as a disease, so they don't think about it in those same terms. It's they don't, looked at as somebody's fault, right? And and they seem to know, or at least they think they seem to know better than we do,
1: right? Right. One thing I just want to interrupt, look up the Surgeon General's report according to, you know, what he says about disease and addiction. Look up the definition of disease. No, it's not the same as my grandmother who died of cancer. No, it's not the same as, you know, heart disease or di- diabetics. Those aren't the same as each other, but it right. is it is scientifically proven to be a disease i call it a disorder and whatever it is people are dying in an overwhelming amount and families are suffering whatever it is
2: and for me i actually do i do feel that it is very similar to other diseases in that you know people will say things like uh, oh it's a choice it's a choice it's a choice well there's plenty of other diseases that we inflict upon ourselves by the choices that we make. So, you know, I mean, heart disease, diabetes, any of the diseases that are related to obesity. I mean, these are all, and I also simply, I also don't necessarily think that obesity is just a choice, right? I, I think that there may be something genetic- just like I believe that there is some genetic component to uh, substance use disorder, or any any one of these diseases, diabetes,
1: heart failure, it, it, it just drives. It just has more judgmental driven behavior. Right. The behavior that it drives. It's like a fever right. to a flu. With addiction, it drives dishonesty and the things that drive them out of desperation because they need it like they need oxygen and they'll do anything and they all come up with the same kinds of ways. So, so I agree. They don't have as much, people don't have the understanding for it, but that I think that's changing. I think it
2: is slowly, but I also think that people think they're experts on it. Right. right and, and on and everything the, right and the, the fact I'm not an expert on it and I've been dealing with it for a couple of years you're not an expert on it and I've been, and been, dealing, been with dealing with it. it for your whole life my whole
1: I have not had one day of my life unaffected by addiction I have not right. had a normal mother relationship my son does not live in the same state as me even though he's doing well because that's what's best for his recovery and not being around my mother so I've not had a day unaffected and I'm not an expert. I'm still learning something every day. Right. But even when when we're in the midst of, um, one of the questions I had, because I felt like I was surrounded by enemies when all of this went on, and it seemed like, it seemed a very, it was a very strange season when my son went through this. It was really dark, and you're going through the fear and terror and pain and all of that anyway, but I had a lot of conflict in my life then, and I really looked at it as um, something I magnetically seemed to attract, and it purged and healed from my life as soon as I got better in recovery. But in during the midst of that, it seemed like people lined up to take kind of shots at me or kick me when I was down. And I don't mean that in a victim situation. It just seemed like I had the same thing going on everywhere. Whether it was at work or in a home life situation, I had somebody starting shit with me constantly and I wasn't able to really deal with it or respond you know whether it was a friend snapping at me out of nowhere lying and stabbing me in the back or it you know those things don't even matter it just all happened then so I really wanted to look into why are people inclined to kick someone when they're down
2: yeah that's a good question let me interrupt the show for just a moment. I'd like to remind listeners there's a wealth of information about topics related to substance use disorder on alliesinrecovery.net. Allies in Recovery is a private members-only site that connects families dealing with substance use. It also teaches strategies for both helping your loved one and self-care. That's alliesinrecovery.net. Now back
1: to the topic. I did hear on a Dr. Drew podcast, he interviewed Wesley Chapman, who has, he does a lot of um, psychological work for healing from woundedness and triumphantly. He is Dog the Bounty Hunter's son and has this, you know, great life where he's overcome a lot of childhood abuse. He was saying people are drawn to wounds almost like the smell of blood it becomes kind of a feeding frenzy and they'll come after your weaknesses and they almost eat your wounds as gross as that sounds it seems like people are drawn to woundedness and you know what's a fact there just are unkind toxic people if they you know they just are that's a fact they just exist and it's you're never going to figure it out or understand it but there are people who take the opportunity to rise up and take a shot when life is at its worst for you. And that's just how it is. There's really no understanding it. Right.
2: So, and it's not your responsibility to change them. right? It's fix not, it. You're never
1: right, going to fix it.
2: Right. It's their responsibility to do something about it,
1: to recognize it. If they right? even ever do. It's your responsibility right. to protect yourself. So one question I had was, it does, because it does seem like you're speaking different languages than anybody who's been through it before, when people aren't awake – How could they understand? It's almost as if they're unconscious. So I found this great article in Psychology Today that details um, these theories, and it's called Why Are People Mean? (laughs) So it really explains it well. It's really powerful. People are mean, it says, because we have a natural human compulsion to compare ourselves to others. And those who aren't strong in their own confidence have got to see negative in others, in order to see positive in themselves, it's called the social comparison theory. So, one thing that's true confident people, number one, they don't overpromote themselves. And number two, they don't tear someone else down, especially not when they're suffering anyway. Yeah, right, right. <laughs> and so, p- some dynamics right, it's of that like adding salt to the wound on purpose, like right. just intentionally causing pain or making somebody feel shunned or shamed. Um, some of the like, dynamics of it, of why people are mean, there's something called positive distinction, and that there are people. Um, People just typically naturally want to relate to a group that is separate and elite. You want to fit in with the cool kids, with keeping up with the Joneses, with the group that's got it right, with the group that's important and powerful, with the team that's winning. Mm -hmm. That's just a natural human thing. And a lot of people haven't made peace with being able to be alone or go through a season of loss, you know, a losing season, because they're still stuck on the dynamic of needing to positively identify themselves. So that (laughs) usually means excluding someone else. That need to exclude somebody or some other group is wrapped up in this. And then sometimes people are mean because they're operating under the uh, distorted, thinking called projection, and that is if you are feeling shameful you're going to probably shame others. If you're going through a time of, of, of having a dishonesty in a secret in your life, you're going to perceive others as trying to deceive you or you'll expose others as being manipulative and on the take you're, you're, because you, you tend to see what you're up to. You, you see dishonesty in others. So And sometimes it's just a subconscious ego threat. It's kind of the teeter-totter thing. I don't even really know why I'm operating in this. I just need to bring you down. And you and I have talked about that before today that sometimes women can't stand to hear another woman complimenting because they feel like it's taking from them. If you right. compliment another woman and say, oh, she's so cute. She's got such a great bubbly, bubbly personality. You know, you'll have a friend come alongside and say, well, yeah, but she dresses like this or she can be really annoying because they right. have to add insult in order to not feel negative about themselves. And right. that's, you know, simply because they haven't done the work. And so the summary of this article, I love this. When our self-esteem is threatened, we're more likely to compare ourselves to people we think are worse off than us. That's when we're likely to do it, when our self-esteem is threatened. We need to see other people as having negative traits. We need to degrade people who aren't members of our groups and to become more more directly aggressive toward people in general. When you insult or criticize someone else, it may say more about how you're feeling about yourself. Than the one you're insulting. Yeah, and insecurity over ourself drives much of the cruelty in the world. And that's the article from Psychology Today. That is, that's a good summary of why psychologically, bio, biologically, scientifically, not just in my opinion, right? People are mean and why cool. we do it. Right, right. I also think
2: I also think we're conditioned that way. Like everything you see, like on television and the media, right? Like all of this this reality tv and going after like we'll you know we'll all watch the kardashians and everything's going great and we love them but boy oh boy the moment the moment something goes wrong can't wait to to tear them down just the
1: feeding be, frenzy
2: yep it's a feeding frenzy and and really this is they it's like people smell blood yep, like you they talked do. about before people smell smell blood the other thing though i think particular to substance use disorder is, and this is um, why it's so difficult to um, communicate to others what you're going through and how you feel and why it is so difficult for others to have a kind of empathy for us and what we're going through is that, and you said this, people aren't awake about how, you know, so how could they understand is you don't know what you don't know. Mm -hmm. And I look back when I, before I was going through all that I'm going through or all that I went through with my son, I really didn't know. I really did not know that there was an opiate epidemic going on. I did not know how it affected people. Um, and i had kind of these very naive views like um oh all i have to do is talk to my kids about it and just you know and get them to say oh i would never touch that drug I believed them mm-hmm. I, and I thought, oh, see, they, they told me they would never, ever go near that stuff and I believed what they were saying without understanding the different dynamics that comes into play. So they just don't understand. They just don't understand. I did not understand. I did right. not get it, right? And so now I'm asking somebody else when I'm going through, you know, the depths of despair and frustration and anger, I want them to understand where I'm coming from
1: and they don't. They can't because they, they don't speak can't. the language yet. They don't speak right. the language. Right. Yeah, and that, that brings me to my point that I wondered why the mistreatment hurts so bad when you're in the crisis, particularly with a son or daughter, but any loved one. I mean, like I'd said before, it's like they're laying in bed dying of leukemia. You, I still re, saw, thought back to my son wasn't babied. He's not a mama's boy. I wasn't like the mama's bear. I wanted him healthy, strong man. But when it was going on, I would have these flashbacks of him in sleepers. So it's like seeing them laying in their little childhood pajamas in bed dying of leukemia. No, the, the circumstances are not the same as that. But it's the same to the heart of a mother. And that's right. why it hurts so bad when people are callous or cruel or even casual with you in the midst of it. And right. they can't get it. So I wanted to give the example of... Um, I'd had this conversation with my best friend and I've probably had it with you because if you're close to me, I'm just pretty open. I have to talk about everything, not to the entire world, but I just have to talk things through. I have this conversation with my best friend all the time since I went through this issue of addiction with my son. And it was where little petty shots people would take at me would make me enraged. And I would tell her over and over, because I know this person's doing something passively aggressively online or being rude to me, and they were this way to me when my son was at his worst. And I would say that to her over and over again, and I would say, it triggers me back to that. And then she would say, but you're not in that place with him now, and he's doing great, and that person doesn't matter, and why do you care what they think? And all the things a best friend says over and over, we'd have these conversations. Well, about two weeks ago, this is just stupid stuff that people do that I don't understand adult pettiness. I don't understand adult ch- playground games. I just don't. But a couple of weeks ago, somebody initially always will um, like something on one of the social medias that I'm not in the picture of. And then as soon as I'm in the picture, they won't. But they like everything else that excludes me, if that makes sense. It just regarding someone I'm close to. So again, the details are inconsequential. So this person did it again, immediately jumped on something. Somebody was close to me, had posted. So I sent her a message and was like, she did it again. Every single time there, she's not even close to this person, but every single time she makes a point to like and comment if I'm not involved. And then is silent if I am, and I don't even really know this person. And so she was like, yeah, that's, you know, that was rude or whatever. And I said, it takes me back to, I don't, I didn't know her. And people had told me awful things she said during the worst of my son's days, awful things she had said, things that weren't true, things that were humiliating and insulting. And just, I didn't need to deal with it then. And my best friend said, I just had an aha moment. You, she said, I was about to respond back and say, I can't wait until the day comes that this petty situation doesn't even phase you. And she's like, but I thought about it. You don't bring up issues with your mom over and over again from before it. You don't bring up issues with, you know, your ex-husband. You move on and heal and forgive. You always bring back a few specific situations in the worst of your time with your son. And it's because, she said, if somebody comes after one of my kids or comes at me when I'm dealing with something tremendously terrible, and I'm gushing with blood over one of my kids, I am enraged. I have a, a mother bear enraged instinct. But if they come after just me, I can get over it. She said, I just had an aha moment that when a mom is going through this, you know, or a dad, but a mom is going through this with their child, and someone takes a shot Then it's a whole different level of being triggered and needing to heal because it's not just the shot that's annoying, it takes you back to the hell you were going through, and that somebody would take a shot at you then when you're dying, right? And the other thing is, how can
2: anybody, nobody can expect you to get over anything in any particular time, right? Or, or you might not ever get over it, you might always. Be triggered,
1: yeah. Right, the trigger might, does
2: always come. Right, and and I believe that these these things happen at a time when you are at your uh, you're actually emotionally traumatized. You're and at you're your, almost paralyzed. You're paralyzed, and then the blows come. So this is why you get triggered. Back to that moment.
1: Yeah. Right? And it's and not and even that, it, that the person matters. It's that the shot they took was when my heart was on the outside of my body, broken and infected, and I was in fear. And that's when you took a shot. And just a few people tended to do that. I don't, I'll never understand. It happened at work, it happened at, in my home life, you know, not within my home, but around it these really petty things, I couldn't sit down with these people and say, why do you hate me? Why are you doing this? Why are you posting stuff online? We're in our 30s. Why are you acting like this? Is there anything I can do to make you stop so I can just worry about this kid? You know, and once all of that healed and the dust settled, and you've always find out somebody that does that has their own issues, I, I really just have to move on from that. Right, but looking back, anytime something new happens, it triggers me back to the terror of how awful that was and that someone could be so vicious. And right. she had that aha moment that, that it's not that that person bothers you or you even think of them. It's that it takes you right back to the trauma of your son. Right. And that's what everything's about. And I was like, yes. She's yeah. like, I just, I got it. I just totally got it. It's like yeah. my eyes were open. I got it. And I right. loved that she got it. While I'm thinking about it, successful intervention strategies to help a loved one deal with his or her substance use are often counterintuitive. Our sponsor, alliesandrecovery.net, offers suggestions that have been proven effective in getting loved ones into treatment and helping them stay there while reducing the stress, blame and guilt we so often feel. I encourage listeners to join alliesandrecovery.net today. So, as you were saying,
2: it's it's interesting because it's empathy right? Which is what I think we're missing so much of is empathy. She was able to empathize. She was able to put herself in your situation and think, oh,
1: she's not just being bitter over stupid stuff. She wants to be a victim. It takes her, but there's something in you changes forever when you've gone through the life and death addiction of a child. It just does. You can become better. You can become stronger. You can heal. You can recover, but you are never the same no you're never the
2: same and it is it's
1: it's trauma it's trauma and trauma with
2: anything it doesn't have to be substance use disorder it could be anything
1: anything yeah trauma
2: changes you you're not the same person
1: You're not, you can become better, but you're never the same. And it never just goes away. It becomes a scar. you know, I always talk about how I had something called doormat syndrome. I just came from a family that tended to put each other down and blame each other for things. And I can't explain why I would take other people's responses or attitudes toward me and receive them as my worst. I couldn't explain that to someone confident because they would just say, well, you know, that's not true. And that person doesn't even matter. You're not even close to that person you haven't been through doormat syndrome. You haven't been traumatized by your family. You're not healing from a, an addicted mother or, you know, and I don't want to be a victim of it and live this the rest of my life. But until I get strong in this area, I'm affected. You know, we do something that I call marinating in the ways of our families. You know what marinating means when you kind of marinate a steak and everything gets down inside it. When you are marinated in the ways of your family. And it takes years as an adult to come out of that. And in my particular situation, you know, which is all in my book, I don't need to go into it. We were marinated thinking wrong was right, right? We were taught a lot of wrong things, condemnation, religious wrong things, wrong things about people of other races, wrong things about money and living in poverty, wrong things about prescription drugs. I was taught wrong was right. And wherever that came from, it doesn't matter. But that's what I marinated in. So if you're in my life and you've not marinated in those things, you can't understand why I'm so affected. Just like nobody can understand why I'm so affected by the terror I went through with my son and how I have a chip on my shoulder toward anyone that made it worse when I i was right. in it you can't right. understand it right and that's just and, it and you can try to deal with it and you can move forward but you
2: also have to be forgiving of yourself when you're put back in that when you know when you're triggered to go back there it, that's okay too right yeah. maybe you just have a little bit better coping skills maybe you just need to get through it a little bit and drum those coping skills back up again but expect it to happen, I guess.
1: Well, absolutely. Right? And, and I can get stronger every time it does and heal a little bit more. Like I was telling you so many bites from a snake, you become immune to the poison. Yeah, so I, I've right. become a lot more immune and especially learning tactics of therapy. I have what I call a process of 3D. And that's when I take, when something bites me or I get the trigger, I will distract, I will decompress, and then I will deal. So that means distract, I have to pull away for 90 seconds, hold an ice cube, go for a walk, whatever, breathe, decompress, let my ke- the chemicals in my body calm down into a safer emotional well-being, and then I deal. And sometimes I'm just not going to deal. And especially if it's something petty, I'm not going to return the shot. I mean, I may eventually confront you in person if somebody approaches me and acts like, hey, how you doing? And I know you've taken these shots at me. I'm probably going to say, yeah, right? Mm -hmm. and not be fake with you, but I'm not going to take petty shots back. I'm not going to retaliate, and I'm not going to get into the energy field of ridiculous nonsense like that. I've got stuff going on. I've got goals. I'm not going to waste time on that, and thank goodness because that's what decompressing helps me avoid. So that's what I did with this one, but what part of my decompressing is I'll turn to my best friend and say – they did it again. And I really want to punch her right in the face. I want to drive to her house and humiliate her. I want to do something in return. That's when I decompress and I don't do it because we're adults, right. you know, but it triggers me to feel like that. Um, well, but and you, it,
2: it, it's also a matter of one, if they're doing something wrong, you don't want to do the same thing.
1: Right. And I don't want to give them the emotion that they're looking for because they're looking for that reaction to bother me. And it's something that's obvious. I'm not making it up and paranoid. It's something that has been admitted behind my back or, you know, things like that. Just really petty things, high school games from someone that's not matured. So moving on from that, I can say, I don't even consider this group of people or this type of person to be my enemy. I consider the effects of them to be my enemy. But honestly, I know this, I have a very sober understanding that I am to be my own advocate. So therefore, who is at fault if I continue to subject myself to mistreatment when I'm vulnerable? Who's at fault if I'm to be my own advocate? I'm my own enemy. If I open myself up to that, if I give anybody access to me, to those areas that they're repeatedly taking shots at or hurting, you know, if my mom takes certain pattern of shots at me and I keep opening myself up to it, I'm my own enemy. Because I got to be my own advocate. And honestly, if someone else is to blame for my misery, then I have to constantly fix them in order to have peace. Right. And that fixing things outside yourself is a good way to live a life of misery. Right. I can only deal with the internals. So my enemy is myself, if I'm not advocating, and I would say also my enemy is my dysfunctional pathology, that I was born into patterns and cycles within my family. I had a pattern of stepping into pre-existing dysfunction, situations, a work setting that was toxic, or, you know, a friendship with somebody whose family was toxic, or a relationship, stepping into it, and then, you know, you're new, and it's fresh blood, so everyone attacks you and puts you down because people need to exclude and find negative things. Those things would happen, and I would think I was at fault for it because I was strung out on the attitudes of other people, and I was drowning in everyone else's behavior and opinions. I was at the mercy of it, and those issues bloom large until you've done the work to heal. So accepting my worth and identity from others, that was my self-mutilation, and I have to say this is a quote I stand on. I've come up with myself for myself. I believe when your value of yourself is broken or contaminated, you become a container for the dysfunction of those around you. Mm -hmm. If your worth is strong, those things are going to bounce off. They might hit you and trigger you and hurt you, but you're not going to receive them and walk in them and try to work it out with someone who's got their own issues. We don't know that going into these things.
2: Great statement. (laughs) Yeah.
1: And you know, I got to also say the disease of addiction is my enemy. Not my addicted mother, not the behavior of my son, not somebody else attacking. The disease of addiction is my enemy when it came to that time of life. And my enemies are silence, shame, and stigma. More than a person, oh, it's those behaviors. Yeah, silence, shame, and stigma. Those are yeah. the enemy, not any and particular I, person.
2: I agree with you. And, and I would say, yeah, the disease of addiction is definitely my enemy
1: and definitely the stigma. Stigma is, that's a big one. And those who shame. I had read something that it's in toxic families. I have a dialectical therapy workbook. I always return to and go back through the exercises. It talks about how in toxic families, we are taught to hyper criticize. So that shaming and criticism, it's, it's mentally unsound. It's mentally not well. It's not right. No matter who it's coming from, that judgment, when people are walking in that type of judgment they're wrong. No matter how right the facts are, they're wrong to shame others. And and silence, when it comes to having my own voice or speaking out against addiction and dysfunction, because I speak out about that all the time, silence is my enemy. When I just absorb things and sink in the misery of them, those are my enemy. But recovery, self-respect, self-care, and self-esteem, having my own identity, those are, that's my recovery. That's the solution. Knowing who I am and letting no one dictate that to me, no one's going to dictate my confidence to me because that's internal. Knowing who I am, that's my recovery. Right. So I have coming through so many years of it and doing the work, I love this quote I wrote down that says, the more my heart heals and expands, the less offended I feel by other people working out their particular stage of being human.
2: Ooh, I like that too, because that gives a sense of forgiveness.
1: Yeah, and leaves the door open for anyone can change. You know, I hear like, I read a lot of articles about um, people that are narcissists, and I could apply that to this person or that person. Sometimes narcissism looks more like Asperger's, so you never really know. I mean, I'm not trying to armchair diagnose somebody, but you'll also, you'll often hear people say, can a narcissist change? Somebody who's manipulative and dishonest and selfish, can they change? And you always hear people say no. And I think that pain, loss, suffering, anyone can change. I'm not going to make myself vulnerable, you know, expecting them to change. And my life decisions are based on the fact that they're going to change. Right. But I'm never going to shut that door and say the worst of people You know, I'm not, I'm not including death row inmates or criminal. I'm saying the worst of selfish, unconscious, not awake people who are vindictive and petty. I'm not going to say they can't change. I believe anyone can change. Recovery can come to anyone and they're just not at a stage yet where something has opened their eyes. Right. And how could they get me?
2: I often think about this about having expectations, you know, and I'm like, well, how can how can you not have expectations but then how can people I don't know, if, if you don't have expectations, then people walk all over you. But I think about it this way now. I think about it as if you have, you can have high expectations of people, but just don't expect them to live up to your high expectations and right. then you won't get
1: disappointed. <laughs> right. right. You don't put your emotion, you're not hinged on that, those expectations right. to where you're counting on them and that makes your decisions. Right. But right, the door it's is definitely like, open.
2: Right. It's kind of like, well, you set up your own boundaries to keep yourself safe, right? I set up my own boundaries in my relationships, and that's what I expect people to live up to. But if they don't live up to them, then the boundaries are already in place.
1: Right. And I really don't look at people as my enemy anymore. Their behavior is. Yeah, yeah. You know, I went through a time where I felt like I had a lot of enemies. And, you know, I don't feel like that's a victim statement or a persecution complex. It was just a fact that... I felt like a lot of people were against me or acting really insulting and rude toward me for whatever reason. And that's not the case now. And if it was, I'd be a lot stronger. But I really, looking back, I don't think that they were truly my enemy. Their mindset was. You know, maybe they had a need to gang up on somebody so they would feel more united. And that's not healthy either, but that's not my fault. Unless I've done something criminal to you or abusive toward you or wrong, and you come to me and confront me about it so I can make amends, you're not really in the right ever to attack me or exclude me or make my life miserable, especially not when I'm going through Hell of a child that's sick, right? But but you're not even my enemy, your behavior was my enemy, and I hope you wake up to it. Maybe they have by now, but I'm so self protected and then such a different place of wholeness that I would have no idea and I don't even pay attention anymore until those triggers come, and then I just have to deal with decompressing and then deal, yeah. (laughs) So, anyway, that was my um subject this time because you know, I, I just had coffee with a girlfriend I hadn't seen in a while. A few weeks ago and she was going through a really hurtful phase where she felt ganged up on and belittled and picked on and by other women and she said I don't understand mean girls this mean girl behavior in your 30s and 40s I just don't understand it and yeah, they can't I name that. anything I've done and she's like I'll post something you know on Facebook they take a screenshot and pass it around and they're all making fun of me and I don't understand that or there's like a group text of girls going around making fun of somebody who had um A health issue because she'd had breast implants in the past. So this woman's struggling and they're kind of making fun of her. And these are people in their forties, professional people who should know better moms with children. It boggles my mind as well. But she was saying, I had to pick myself back up and heal from that and rebuild myself. And it's really nothing to do with her. It's just a nasty group mentality. Right. So if you're part of that, it's not going to heal you or make you valuable or strong to attack others you really need to wake up that that's not even human this is a human experience we're all sharing and we're all connected if one person is hurting and attacked we all are we're all sick right that's all i got that's all you got Well, (laughs) yeah and until next time we will be coming up for air sounds good i'll talk to you later annie okay bye bye bye
0: Thank you for listening to this Coming Up for Air podcast with Annie Highwater and Lori McDougall. If you're interested in reading Annie's book, Unhooked, A Mother's Story of Unhitching from the Roller Coaster of Her Son's Addiction, it's available online. Or you can simply follow the link at the bottom of one of Annie's blog posts on alliesinrecovery.net. Coming Up for Air is sponsored by Allies in Recovery, the online home for families facing the addiction of a loved one. Allies in Recovery can help you understand your loved one's struggle and offers effective communication strategies that encourage treatment and discourage use. In addition to interactive e-learning, Allies in Recovery offers expert advice, podcasts, tools for evaluating treatment options, recent news items, and access to a large community of families coping with issues similar to yours. Join alliesinrecovery.net today. That's alliesinrecovery, all one word, dot net. Thank you for listening. Our theme music was performed and composed by cellist Eric Corey.